Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good to see everybody tonight. Um, tomorrow, most important of which, we celebrate Texas Independence Day. So it's important to always remember those who fought and died for our freedom and the fact that the reason we have freedom is because men and women were willing to give their lives for it. And so Texas Independence Day is celebrated tomorrow. I always remember the days back when we used to be able to take that as a holiday when people had their priorities right. Another announcement next week, the um, the um, conference begins on Monday. Everybody's working hard, so you can continue to pray for all the pastors and those who are going to be speaking because uh, they're under a lot of pressure. That always happens at this time, and everybody has just about gotten all their papers and everything in that they need to have in, and everything is pretty much ready to go. And um, so we'll be uh, able to get all of our materials and everything prepared for the handing out and everything I think we have enough drivers. If you can, haven't volunteered, you want to help, just talk to Connie uh, Balthrop or to Glenda and uh, ask them and where you can be used, and they'll be glad to plug you in somewhere. Also, the following week, the uh, daylight savings time begins, so we spring forward and lose an hour of sleep. And then um, we had our congregational meeting on Sunday. That went, uh, went well, and um, at the meeting... Since some of you didn't stay for the meeting, uh, at the meeting I announced that last night there was a, a CIP meeting. I have no idea what that stands for, and Alan's not here. He could probably tell me, but uh, what? Capital Improvement Project meeting for the, this, this di- what's our district? A. a. City Council District A. And so I had announced that this was an important meeting to come to in about Twelve or thirteen folks from the church showed up, which was good. It would have been nice if we could have had about uh, 50 or 75 show up since our church is in that district. And uh, the mayor was trying to steamroll her plan for uh, related to the implementation of Prop 1. And everything seemed to have been going pretty well until a certain pastor got up and began to ask some questions and tried to rattle everybody's cage. And I was on a conference call with a number of other pastors and Paul Bentoncourt and Ed Young and some others this afternoon and was surprised to find out that uh, the mayor's cage had gotten rattled. They're trying to pull some sort of uh, maneuverings to get around uh, the the voice of the people in all of this. So uh, there's a lot going on. And this thing is not over with by a long shot, and there are going to be a number of things that are going to be happening in the next uh, several weeks. And uh, so you need to be involved. You need to be communicating with your representative on the Houston City Council because this is going to be one of the most uh, egregious tax things that this city has passed and dumped on people. And you'll be paying for yourself at home. You'll be paying whenever you go to the store to shop. You'll be paying... Uh, through your local, all the school districts are going to be taxed, which means they'll just pass the tax on to you, so your school district taxes are going to go up. So you'll be paying this, not just the little bitty $5 the mayor told you about, but you'll probably be paying about, I don't know, eight or ten times that amount 
uh, every and and in many different ways. So I encourage you to be uh, be involved in that. Not to mention the fact this is just another way the camel's nose gets under the tent in terms of taxing nonprofit organizations. There are numerous people in government today who can't wait to start taxing nonprofit organizations and taxing churches and synagogues and other uh, places of, uh, of religious worship so that they can uh, put some of these out of business on the one hand, because I do believe that is the agenda that a number of them have, and, and others just want to get more money out of the pockets uh, of the, the citizenry. And if we let them get away with a millimeter, they will take a 100 miles. So we have to be involved uh, because, if, as Martin Luther said, if you don't fight the battle where the enemy is attacking, then you will lose the war. So we have to uh, wake up and pay attention. But we always have to remember that the battle is the Lord's. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Please uh, remember to pray for Jim Myers. He's having some uh, minor uh, health problems, needs to figure out what's going on there. And also uh, my friend uh, Roy Zuck, who is a former professor of mine at Dallas Seminary, editor of uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary and some other things, has been diagnosed with cancer, so we need to be praying for him as well. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come to you because we know that you desire us to bring our petitions before you. You desire us to to bring these requests before you, to express our dependence upon you, and you, you desire to answer our prayers uh, within the prerogatives of your sovereignty. Father, we're thankful for this church and this congregation, for the way you are working in and through this congregation, for the conference we're having next week. For the pastors who are preparing to come next week, we pray that you would uh, strengthen them and that you would minimize their distractions so that they can uh, get all the things done that they need to in order to be prepared for next week. And, Father, we also pray for uh, Jim Myers and his health, and we pray for also we pray for uh, Dr. Zuck up in Dallas, and we just pray that you would uh, uh, give the doctor skill in treating his cancer and that he would be a uh, good testimony uh, during his time that he is going through this uh, cancer treatment. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Acts chapter 2. I just love this chapter. So much is going on in this chapter. People don't realize how much really hinges in Acts chapter 2. And it is, pardon the pun, a hinge chapter because things turn on this chapter. What has been before 
is past with the, with the events of Acts 2. Ever since the time of the call of Abraham in Acts, I mean in Genesis chapter 12, God has put the focal point of the way he has worked to reach humanity um, through the Jews. He doesn't change from that in that all of the New Testament writers were also uh, Jewish, Jewish members in the early church, but there is a shift in God's plan and program. He is not replacing Israel. It is clear that God still has a plan and a purpose for Israel, but the New Testament teaches that because uh, the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that God has temporarily set them aside in this church age, and he begins to do something new in a new organism that is called the church. And the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile, as the scripture says, but ethnicity is not the issue that it was prior to the day of Pentecost. In the Old Testament, God worked exclusively through Israel, and the plan that God had for reaching the world was that he would build a counterculture civilization in Israel based on the law given at Sinai. And as the world saw God's treatment of Israel and saw the blessing of God upon Israel as they walked in obedience with him, then the world would would come to Israel and learn about God and then take that information back to their home countries, wherever that was. And that was the means of spreading uh, the truth about God in the Old Testament. Israel's failure to live up to that responsibility led to their uh, divine discipline. We saw this in our study of uh, uh, first and second kings, as God warned the northern kingdom again and again and again that if they did not return to him, he would uh, remove them from the land, which he did in fulfillment of his promises in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, always with the promise that if they would turn back to him, then he would restore them to the land. And then the southern kingdom of Judah received the same warnings through prophets like Isaiah, at least 150 years before the judgment of 586 B.C., and then later through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And through the warnings of those prophets, the people were prepared for what was going to happen, that they would be invaded by a foreign power, and that they would be destroyed and removed from the land God promised them because they had uh, rejected God and had uh, substituted uh, idolatry for the worship of God. And so there's this Old Testament background of the promise that God had for Israel. Now, Israel has rejected the Messiah, and because of that, there is going to be a warning again of judgment. And this is what occurs on the day of Pentecost. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let's just review what I covered last time so make sure everybody understands uh, some of the new material that I uh, was um, teaching last time in relationship to the filling uh, of the Spirit. The time is the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is one of three festivals on the Jewish ritual calendar that all of the adult males 
and Israel were required to come to the central sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem, and to worship. So this would mean that, that Jerusalem, the population of Jerusalem would swell during this time as uh, men and families came from not just uh, the, the Galilee, but also from, uh, they would come from Babylon, they would come from Rome, they would come from the Parthian Empire, the Roman Empire, they would come from North Africa, and they would come back to, to Jerusalem. So it is a, a great festival time. And the day of Pentecost was, I believe, the time, as I pointed out last last time, that on the Jewish calendar, that each of these significant feast days had a prophetic fulfillment, so that the uh, Passover was fulfilled in the death of Christ on the cross, and Jesus died on the day of Passover, as they were, as the uh, priests were sacrificing the. Passover lamb in the in the temple at that very same time Jesus is being crucified on Golgotha outside the gate then on first fruits uh, Jesus was raised from the dead uh, three days later and now 50 days after the day after um, after Passover on the day of Pentecost which would have been the day the Holy Spirit would have been poured out upon Israel in fulfillment of, uh, of the, the promises of the Old Testament in relation to the establishment of the New Covenant. Uh, that event would have happened, but because Israel had rejected uh, Jesus as the Messiah, it was not going to have the same impact that it had, and it was going to be uh, slightly different uh, because of the fact that Israel had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So this is what is transpiring on the day of Pentecost. This is the last of the so-called spring festivals and the fall festivals, which relate to um, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and uh, Sukkot. These are the time, these will be fulfilled in the future when the Messiah returns. The fact that there is this time gap between the uh, spring festivals and the fall festivals indicates that there is a gap of time between the fulfillment of the first group of festivals and the fulfillment the second time, and that is the um, uh, intervening period, uh, the age in which we now live, which is where the emphasis is on the church, not on Israel, but the, the, um, emphasis, the emphasis will be restored to, to Israel when the church is removed at the rapture. So in verse 1, we, we read, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were in the house. This, I believe that early that morning they all gathered at the, the house where the upper room was, and from there they would, were, would go to the, uh, to the temple. And this takes place somewhere between verse 4 and verse 5. Suddenly there came this loud noise, like a rushing wind, like a tornado, filling the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared above them tongues of fire sat on each one of them. So you hear it, you see it, and there was it was experiential. And the reason it was experiential and the only time it's been experiential is because God was doing something new. Now, it will, uh, I just misspoke. I said the only time it was experiential, it is not normatively 
experiential in the life of believers. It was experiential each of the times that it happened uh, in the book of Acts. It happens on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem to an all-Jewish audience. It will happen again when Peter and John take the gospel to the Samaritans. There will be a few differences, but there will be a similar type of event. It will happen again when um, uh, Peter takes the message to the Gentiles, to Cornelius, and then it will happen, some similar things will happen when the Old Testament saints, the followers of John the Baptist, are given the gospel by the Apostle Paul when we get to Acts 19. We're at the beginning of this transition period. But the emphasis I want you to note in these first five chapters is still on Israel. It is, it is only the Jews who receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at this time. There's no Gentiles involved. You don't have Gentile inclusion uh, or entrance into the church until we get to Acts chapter 10. So there is still this transition period and the transition message. There is still the hope that Israel can turn to God and the times of refreshing will come, the times of the kingdom will come, and this is part of... Uh, a part of Peter's message, uh, gospel messages and his sermons that we have in the initial period following the birth of the church and following the day of Pentecost. So uh, we saw in verse 3 that after they, the Holy Spirit came, they saw these tongues of fire over them, and then verse 4 said they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Two key doctrines to discuss here. One is the filling of the Spirit, and the second has to do with speaking in tongues. So I want to review some things I said last time about the filling of the Spirit, because this isn't what you might think it is. That's the problem with English, is that we used slightly different, or the same words, so it always sounds the same, but it's not quite. I pointed out last time, that there are two verbs that are used to describe the uh, filling of the Spirit. The first is plerao, and the second is pimplami. They do come from the same root. That's that uh, syllable that is spelled with a P-L-E. So uh, you have the syllable play plus the uh, ending rao indicating the verb, that is the verb that is used in Ephesians 5.18 in an imperative to be filled by means of the Spirit. That's the only time in all of Scripture that, it's in, that you have an imperative in relationship to the filling of the Spirit, or filling by means of the Spirit, literally. Pimplami is another word that is used, and though it comes from the same root, these are not necessarily interchangeable terms. There is a field of meaning in both of these words that overlaps and where they are interchangeable. Both words are used at times to refer to the fulfillment of Old Testament passages. Both words are used of filling up something such as a basket or some sort of container with something. But there the similarity stops. There are distinct meanings within each word group that indicate that they are not always the same. For example, I went through a whole list of verses last time in talking about uh, Pimplami, where I showed that every time that was used, the person who was filled by uh, filled of the Spirit, it's a genitive 
use there, not a dative use, which is very important, that genitive use, then the person who's filled uh, of the Spirit is then would speak in some way. So it always precedes some sort of speech or some sort of announcement or something of that nature. The first uh, person indicated by this is the... Um, is the father of, of John the Baptist, and then his mother, Elizabeth, and, and Mary, and then you don't have it happen again. It's not that word isn't used again. That phrase isn't used again until you get to this particular incident. And they are all uh, filled, and this word here is pimplamy. This is not the filling by means of the Spirit that is mandated in Ephesians 5.18. This is not a ministry of God the Holy Spirit related to spiritual growth and the spiritual life. This is a filling of the Spirit that is related to the pronouncement of the Word of God and the announcement of truth. It is probably close to, uh, as close a word as we have that would be related to an act of divine, uh, divine inspiration. So the Pimplamy word group does, uh, does not indicate uh, the means of the spiritual life. This is an endowment of the Spirit for the purpose of making some sort of utterance or some sort of announcement. Then the next word that I put up there is a word we did not talk about last time because we didn't have time, and this is an adjective built off of the same root, P-L-E, and this is the word playrace. And it is translated full or filled, but not as a verb, but as an adjective. Now, this is important to understand that, that when you have a verb, uh, that verb can be uh, used as an imperative. That means, and whenever you have an imperative, this is like a, um, uh, this, this is like a mathematical uh, equation that either you do X or you do Y. You can't. Uh, you can't do both at the same time. When you're told to do something, you either do it or you don't do it. You don't have any other option. And it is uh, an imperative is always addressed to the volition, uh, emphasizing the fact that people have a choice to respond in obedience or to uh, disobey the command. But in a uh, an adjective which is a noun that is used to describe other nouns. Always remember what the essence of an adjective is. Its purpose is description. It is not talking about an action. It is not a noun of action. It is simply describing uh, a characteristic. And that's how this word is used. And so I'm going to put on the screen uh, four verses where this is used in a non-spiritual context so we can develop a few uh, insights into the way the word is used and what it means. In Luke chapter 5, verse, verse 12, we're told that uh, it happened when he was in a certain city, that is Jesus, that behold, a man who was play race, full of leprosy, and the word that follows that is a word that's in the genitive case, and so this is an adjectival use of the genitive case, and it's describing a person's situation or a person's uh, uh, characteristic of that person, which is the primary use of this meaning according to uh, the uh, Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich lexicon. It describes a person 
who, uh, who has a power, a gift, a feeling, or a characteristic, or quality. And so it says he's full of leprosy, which means he's leprous. He has leprosy. It is an idi- idiomatic, struct- uh, idiomatic way of expressing a characteristic of a person. So a man was full of leprosy. It doesn't mean that he is filled up with leprosy. It just is saying he is a man who has leprosy, came to Jesus. A second use is found in Acts 9.36. At Joppa, which is located uh, uh, within the city limits now of Tel Aviv, but there was no Tel Aviv at that time. Tel Aviv is a modern city that was founded in the early part of the 20th century uh, near Joppa, but now it's grown so large it surrounds Joppa. Uh, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. The woman was described, her character is then described. She was full of good works and charitable deeds. So what you have is the adjective play race, and then you have two genitive phrases which describe her character. She's full of good works. And charitable deed, she does good things. There's a double object to this, uh, to this uh, adjective. She's full of good works and charitable deeds. So what is it's describing her? This is a woman who is involved in doing good things to help people. So it's describing her character, and um, it's describing that she is. You might might say if you look up uh, charitable works in the dictionary, her picture is going to be there. This describes her character. All right? Acts 13.10, we have a negative use of this same phrase. Uh, this is a situation where Paul confronts Elymas, who is a magician, and he says to him, uh, to Elymas, Oh, full of dis- all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. He is described in being evil as being a deceiver, but the phrase that is used is this adjective play race plus the genitive for deceit and the genitive form of fraud. So it's simply characterizing him that he's a con man, that he is a fraud, he is a deceiver. And so that's that's how that is described. It is not talking about... um, Anything other than just making a clear description of the man's of the man's character. It's not saying that somehow he has been filled up with deceit by something else. It's just an idiomatic uh, description of his character. Acts nineteen twenty eight. Now, when they heard this, that is the crowd um, in Ephesus when uh, Paul was speaking, they cry out saying um, they were full of wrath. And cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the crowd reacts to what Paul says in speaking the truth and they become angry. So they are described as being full of wrath. They, the whole crowd has become angry. And so the phrase full of wrath describes the anger of the crowd. Now you're saying, okay, so what's the significance of this? Now that we understand how this word is used in, let's say, neutral passages that don't use words like faith and spirit and all these other terms that might get us all confused, we've established the fact that this is nothing more than an idiomatic way of describing a person's character. 
Now, the next time we have it, now this is going to surprise some of you because you've been mistaught on this passage. This isn't plerao, so it doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual life. John Luke 4.1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not filled with the Holy Spirit. It's full, play race, an adjective, plus a genitive construction of the Holy Spirit. It is a description of his character. It is not a statement that somehow he has more of the Holy Spirit than he had at a previous time in his life. Just as full of anger, full of good works, full of deceit were just phrases, idioms to use to describe character. When um, Luke is speaking here, he says, Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit. It could indicate that, that he has, be, and probably does indicate, spiritual maturity. Jesus, we studied this in, in Hebrews, Jesus had to grow to spiritual maturity in his humanity. Jesus had to be sanctified in his humanity. He had to learn obedience by the things that he suffered. That doesn't mean that he was disobedient. It doesn't mean that he was not sanctified at some point. It doesn't mean that he was carnal at any point, but it means that as a human being, he had to go through the same growth process as we do, and he had to learn the Word of God in his humanity. He had to learn obedience to God in his humanity, and he had to grow to spiritual maturity. And so here we have a phrase, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, which describes him as a mature matured spiritually in his humanity. Now, the reason we say that is because this word, this type of phrase is used of several other people in the New Testament, and it has to mean the same thing for everybody. Of course, he is the archetype of what spiritual maturity in, in humanity uh, is supposed to be. We see it used by the uh, Apostle John. In John 1.14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is a descriptive phrase that Jesus is the epitome. He is the picture of grace and truth. If you look up grace and truth in the dictionary, there's a picture of Jesus next to it. Okay? It's a descriptor. Then we come to Acts chapter 6. This is where we have uh, the most of the uses of this type of phraseology in Acts chapter 6 and 7 related primarily to Stephen, but also to the other six who were chosen by the apostles to help them in the distribution of aid to the uh, Hellenistic widows in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 6, verse 3, they're expressing their need to have some assistance because the apostles needed to focus on prayer and teaching, and so they uh, were going to find seven men. I think I said six earlier. It's Acts 6, seven men. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of two things, just like we had earlier, full of deceit and fraud. Here we have full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. It is a description, full of the Holy Spirit indicates spiritual maturity, full of wisdom is the application of doctrine uh, within that spiritual maturity. So these men were to be spiritually mature men, full of the Holy Spirit, 
and wisdom. It's play race plus a genitive. It's not, a, not play ra'o with a dative. Acts 6.5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they selected. This is a voting process. This is a positive authorized voting process, unlike perhaps Acts chapter 1. They were authorized to select to, as they're developing the administration of the early church. This sets a standard of what I, ref, I call uh, management and labor. Management are the, are the apostles. They're the teachers and they are to pray. Labor are the deacons. They take care of the administrative functions. So this comes across later as an analogy to pastors and deacons. These men are not deacons. They serve the church, and the verb diaconeo is used here, but not the noun. So this saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So it's a description that he is a man who is, uh, he's faith, he has faith in God, he is, has excelled and mastered the faith rest drill, and the Holy Spirit, which takes, uh, going back to Luke 4, 1, and, um, in John chapter 1, this is a description of spiritual, uh, spiritual maturity. Acts 6, 8, and Stephen full of faith and power. So it's describing him that he has faith in God and he has power. He was able to perform miracles just as Philip did and some of the others who were associates with the apostles. Uh, full of faith and power, did great sign, wonders and signs among the people. And then in Acts 7.55, just as he is about to, um, just as he is about to, uh, go to be with the Lord when he is being stoned by the Sanhedrin, the scripture says, and he being full of the Holy Spirit, and then, uh, cut off the verse, he looks into heaven and sees the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father to receive him. So full of the Holy Spirit there isn't plerao, it's pimplemi. It's a genitive phrase, not a dative phrase. So it is not talking about the means of spiritual growth and spiritual life, but it's describing his, the, the, the end product. He is be, he's full of the Spirit. He has grown to spiritual maturity. So in this sense, this phraseology speaks of spiritual maturity. Acts 11.24. Uh, Acts 11.24 is a reference to Barnabas. Barnabas, who was the son of encouragement, who was the one who remembered uh, the Apostle Paul being stuck away in Tarsus for a little private training from the Lord. Uh, he's the one who went to Tarsus and got, and, uh, uh, got the Apostle Paul to come out of, of hiding there in his tent-making operation. And we're, we're given a description of Barnabas's character in Acts 11.24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Same phrase that's used of Stephen, indicating spiritual maturity characterized by a person who trusted God uh, in, in the details of his life. So this shows us that this phrase, full of the Spirit, and it's only used in Acts. It's primarily used by Luke uh, in either the Gospel of Luke or Acts, there's one example of it in the Gospel of John, but the rest of them are, are in the writings of Luke. So what this tells us, uh, 
is, first of all, we see that it's used in cases that do not involve Christian character. And from those cases, uh, I, I showed that this is an idiom that describes some aspect of a person's character. It is an idiom describing uh, their attributes, their qualities, uh, whether good or bad. Second, we saw that in the case of the Lord, it presents his character at the end of a process, that he has reached spiritual maturity and is now prepared, uh, prepared to, for his public ministry and is going to go through his uh, authentication testing in Luke chapter 4 when the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness because he had become spiritually mature in his humanity. Then uh, third, I saw that I pointed out that in the case of Stephen and others that were chosen in Acts 6, it describes their character. They're full of faith and wisdom, full of the spirit and wisdom, full of faith and power. So this describes their character, their spiritual maturity, their uh, their, the end result of their spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So in conclusion, what we see is that there's these three different words that are used, all coming off of the same root, but they have different applications and distinctly different uses in the Scripture. Pimplamy emphasizes a work of the Holy Spirit that results in something spoken. It's never used as an imperative. Play race is an adjective that is always followed by a genitive clause, and it's an idiom that describes a character, the character of a person. It's never used with a, with a dative uh, clause or phrase. So it's not talking about means or instrumentality, and means and instrumentality usually emphasizes dependence. And then third, we have the use of playrao in Ephesians 5.18, which is the command to be filled, which means it's passive, so we have to be, we have to respond to it. Somebody else performs the action. It is the, uh, it is God the Father or the Holy Spirit who performs the action of filling us, and he, it's the Holy Spirit who fills us with the content of His Word. So, but we have to be in a position where we're responsive to his filling. So the command to be filled by means of the Spirit emphasizes that either or, either we're obedient or disobedient, we're either abiding in Christ or we're not abiding in Christ, we're either walking by the Spirit or we're not walking by the Spirit, we're either walking in the light or we're not walking in the light. All of those phrases, abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, are ways in which we maintain our fellowship with God. When we quit walking, then the default position is to uh, live according to the sin nature, and that immediately breaks that fellowship or rapport with God, and there has to be a recovery through the use of 1 John 1, 9, confession of sin, in order to be restored to a position where we can again go forward in our spiritual growth. So this passage, Acts back to Acts 2.4, is not talking about spiritual life dynamics. It is talking about a sovereign act of God on someone, in this case the disciples in Jerusalem, for a specific purpose to give them utterance so that 
uh, there will be a pronouncement of the truths about God as they praise God uh, on the day of Pentecost, and this will attract a, an enormous crowd. So we're told they were all filled, by, filled full, they were all filled of the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Now this word tongues is really an antiquated English word. We don't use it that much anymore. It's the Greek word glossa, which is where we get our word glossolalia, which is just a technical word for speaking in tongues. Glossa for tongue and laleo is the Greek word meaning to speak. So you combine them and you have glossolalia, which means to speak in tongues. Glossa, though, is never used of ecstatic utterance. I have Years ago, I searched and searched and searched through everything I could, did massive searches in, in um, uh, classical Greek literature and the papyri and everything I could find to see if I could find a use of glossa in reference to the pagan uh, utterances that, uh, for example, at the, uh, uh, the Oracle of Delphi, the uh, Pythian uh, priestess, who would be who would sit over the hole uh, in her little uh, uh, temple, and the smoke would come up from the ground, and, and they've discovered that there were certain uh, uh, gases that were there that would induce uh, induce a, a, a hallucinatory state, and then she would be uh, allegedly indwelt by the spirit of the uh, uh, Puthanos, the Python spirit. And then she would speak in gibberish to us, and this was the voice of the God. So you had this kind of glossolalic utterance in various uh, in various pagan religions. You had it uh, in the worship of Dionysius, who was the god uh, of wine, or otherwise known as Bacchus. And I guess if you drank enough wine, we might all start speaking in tongues. But uh, they would go up into the high places. Uh, in the woods and the uh, the maenads, who were the high priestesses, would whirl and dance and drink until they would work themselves up into a drunken frenzy, uh, hoping that the god would enter into their body and fill them and then speak through them. So we see that in Satan's counterfeit through these false religions, there's this parallel of filling with the god and speaking in what was allegedly some some sort of uh, language of the gods. But that language of the gods is never referred to by this term glossa. If you look the word up in Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich, which is your standard Greek lexicon, or Liddell Scott, Jones, which is the um, uh, standard classic uh, Greek dictionary that's been updated by Jones in the last 20 years, which now it's called Liddell Scott Jones, or... Um, the, uh, any of the other excellent uh, lexicons for Greek, you will usually see three meanings for glossa. One has to do with that thing that's uh, in your mouth that you use to speak with. Somebody, I always hear somebody say, well, do you speak in tongues? And I say, well, I didn't know how to speak without one. 
that that is the first use of tongue, just the physical organ in your mouth. The second use is it refers to languages. And this was really how the word was used in English uh, predominantly up until the uh, early 20th century when we began to use the word language instead of the word uh, tongue, speaking in other, other tongues. What tongue do you speak? What language do you speak? And then if you look in some of these lexicons, they will list a third meaning of ecstatic utterance. But the only places they go to support that are Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. Now, you can't prove that the Bible teaches ecstatic utterance by using the Bible as the support for that definition. You've got to be able to go someplace other than the Bible uh, with all the hundreds of thousands of Greek documents that we have. We ought to be able to find one place where glossa is used to refer to ecstatic utterance, but you can't. It just never happened. It's clear that it refers to a human language that is uh, that communicates and is spoken and understood uh, between human beings. And so when it says they began to speak with other tongues, this should be translated, they began to speak with other languages, languages that they did not learn in the normal way. They did not acquire the skill in those languages uh, by the normal process. It was a miraculous gift of God so that at that instant they began to speak in a language they had never uh, never learned the normal way. And so every now and then somebody says, well, maybe it was just a miracle of hearing. No, it wasn't. It says they spoke in other languages. And if you, if you read down to the response uh, that, um, uh, of the people in verse 7, it says they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Galileans were thought to be rather backward educationally. Uh, they, they weren't people who would be thought to be bilingual, kind of like most white Texans. Um, and uh, most Americans never learn another language. We expect everybody else to go through the drudgery of learning that language. Incidentally, I read an article this week that if you can acquire a second language to the, to the point of being uh, being able to communicate and, and really being able to speak in that language, then it will help stave off the, the uh, effects of Alzheimer's. You will have it, but you won't show the, the uh, symptoms maybe for an additional four or five years. Uh, just another mental activity to stretch the brain. So everybody go out and learn how to speak Spanish. But look at their response in verse 8. How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? So it's not just they, they're hearing it. We're told that the, the apostles spoke in the language and they heard it in their language. It's, this isn't a subjective thing that they're just somehow hearing it in, inside their head. It was, uh, it was objectively spoken uh, by the apostles. And there was a reason for this. This isn't something that just miraculously happened because God said, oh, wouldn't it be neat to have this kind of a miracle here on the day of Pentecost? All these people have come from, from Babylon and from Rome and from Parthia and from Greece, and wouldn't it be great now they can hear the gospel in their languages? God doesn't work like that. God works through history, and he sets things up thousands of years ahead of time 
so that he can work out all the little details and then bring it to a magnificent demonstration when the time is right. And that's what we have in uh, Acts chapter 2. This isn't just some isolated incident. And so we learn of this if we go to the Old Testament, that there's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 28, uh, verses 10 through 13. Actually, I want to read some of the surrounding context, so I'd like for you to turn in your Bible to the 28th chapter of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is writing at a time when the northern kingdom of Israel has not yet gone out into judgment. They haven't been defeated by the Assyrians, but they're about to be. And he is announcing there the warning to the northern kingdom of of, uh, Israel that they're about to come under divine judgment. So there is a woe announced in the first verse. Remember the Hebrew word for woe? is hoy, which is where eventually in Yiddish you got the word oi. It's woe in the original etymology. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, shows the perversion of the culture in the northern kingdom. Woe to the crown of uh, pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. They put all their emphasis on the superficiality of looking good. Not unlike 21st century American culture. Everything's about how you look, how you dress, the appearance. Everything has got to have that appearance of something that is great and wonderful, uh, but it doesn't matter whether it is or not. We spend, we see politicians spend millions of dollars in creating a facade that convinces people there's something that they are not. And the ones that are successful get elected to office, and then we discover they're not quite what we hoped they were to begin with. So that's the emphasis here. They have an external beauty. They put all their emphasis on the externals and not on the internals. Uh, Jesus said something similar to the Pharisees of his day. He said, you're like whitewashed sepulchers. You look great on the outside, but on the inside you're dead man's bones. So they are under divine judgment, they, and they are actually given over to the pursuit of personal pleasure above anything else. So they have uh, succumbed to alcohol and what other uh, pleasures of life that they can just to, uh, just to live their life for today uh, and no thought for the future. Verse 2, Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm. This is a figurative language in relation to the army of the Assyrians that's coming. They will be as destructive as a major, uh, major storm. I don't think few things can have been as destructive that, that man has created that could be as destructive as what Katrina did to New Orleans or what some of these other uh, natural disasters uh, that have occurred in the last few years have done to some of the areas that have hit them. And so that's the description that the army of Assyria will be as uh, more uh, or as devastating as any natural disaster. Verse 3, again, he re, uh, repeats, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot. This is the leadership 
of the northern kingdom of Israel. They will be destroyed. And the glorious beauties of fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it's still in his hand. And that day the Lord of hosts will will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Notice we leaped from uh, the past and the judgment that was coming then to the future when God will establish his messianic kingdom. And that day always seems to allude to the day of the Lord. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and diadem for, of beauty for his people, as he should have been already. But, but he will only be this to the remnant of his people. See, the Old Testament recognized that there are two classes in the, in the people of Israel. There's the remnant, that is, those who were devoted to God and who worshiped God and who were obedient to the Torah. And then there's the rest. The rest are for, reserved for judgment. Those who are the remnant are those who will have eternal life and those who will have a future in the Davidic kingdom. Verse 6, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. That's the role of God. He will provide justice and strength. Then in verse 7, this is a condemnation, an indictment of the false teachers, and he is, uh, this is the voice of Isaiah in verse 7, but they also have erred through wine, that is the leaders of the nation at that, at, at his time, and through intoxicating drinker out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. So we have a corrupt religious uh, institution. The priests and the prophets are uh, drunk. They're not uh, observant. They're not trusting in God. They're swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. That is, they're prophesying that which is wrong, and they stumble in judgment. They have no wisdom. They have become fools in the language of Proverbs. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. This is a graphic picture of the fact that they're so drunk that they're just, it, it moves, the image, imagery moves from physical vomit to the, the, the imagery that what they are producing in terms of their, their leadership is nothing but vomit and puke. And then we have the, um, this question that occurs in verse 9. It's a response from the false teachers thinking that they are ridiculing Isaiah, and, and, and they are, so they are describing his style of teaching. So whom will he teach to knowledge, meaning Isaiah? Who's, who's he going to teach knowledge to? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breast? And then they're, they're sort of ridiculing for precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Just like what you hear from people. Why do I want to go to a church where somebody's exegeting the Word of God, teaching line upon line, word upon word, and going in-depth into the Word? Let's go someplace and sing praise and worship choruses. Let's go someplace and listen to somebody uh, who's just going to make us feel good, who's just going to give us a, a, a nice, enthusiastic message that is going to lift our spirits and we can all go home and be so happy that we're all in the family of humanity together. 
And that's what you get in most of the very large churches because if they start teaching anything related to truth, then it'll just run people off. So this was the ridicule of the time of Isaiah. Isaiah was rejected. We look at him as this great prophet of the Old Testament, but but remember, he was sawn in two for his faithful message of God. The people never seemed to want truth. And so then there is a warning from Isaiah. Isaiah is speaking again in verse 11. And this is his announcement of coming judgment. And this is what I have up here on the screen. Uh, verse 11, for with, he says, For with stammering lips and another language, he, that is God, will speak to this people. That's the judgment upon Israel. God called them through Abraham to be the covenant people through whom he would speak his word to the nations. And when they reject him, God says the judgment is going to be that you are going to hear God's word, not in Hebrew, but you're going to hear it in Gentile languages. And when you hear it in Gentile languages, that is the sign that judgment is coming. The gift of tongues in, at the day of Pentecost was the first warning shot across the bow of the leadership of Israel that judgment was coming. It was on the horizon. It was about 40 years away, but it was on the horizon. God warns before he brings, uh, before he brings judgment. And they would hear the gospel, not just the gospel, they would hear a message of judgment and they would hear divine truth from in a foreign language, not from, not in the language of, of Hebrew. And so this verse, in verse 11, is then quoted by the Apostle Paul as in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, as he explains the purpose for tongues. Tongues wasn't given for evangelism. This wasn't a missionary gift. Tongues wasn't given in order to uh, uh, give people super spirituality. It wasn't um, given so it could be a prayer language. I always wanted to ask somebody who uh, said that they uh, prayed in tongues. And uh, I've had people tell me this, that they prayed in tongues, and ever since they started praying in tongues, they had a more effective prayer life. I always wanted to ask somebody, well, if it's, how do you know it's more effective if you don't know what you're praying for? You can't understand it. Uh, Paul tells us that the purpose is right here coming out of Isaiah 28.11. In the law, he says, it is written, with men of other languages and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues, Paul said, are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. It's a sign of judgment. Judgment's coming. But prophesying, he says, is not for unbelievers. It's not a sign for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, all of this actually goes back to Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, you have an announcement of all the judgments God's going to bring upon Israel progressively. As they become progressively perverted and reject God, God says, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this. And ultimately, foreigners are going to come into the land they're going to destroy your houses, destroy your crops, and they're going to remove you from the land. 
And in the midst of all that, the, the Lord said in verse uh, Deuteronomy 28, 49, and 50, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. In other words, when you hear Gentile languages in the temple, you're going to know that judgment is around the corner. It's not that they're hearing the gospel. They, there's no place that you find in any of the examples uh, in Acts of tongues where they're giving the gospel to unbelievers. In Acts 2, they speak of the wonders of God. Yes, that might include the gospel. And certainly Peter, when he preached, gave the gospel. But that's not the point. The point is just simply hearing Gentile languages in the court of the temple is an affront to everything that was meant to be Jewish. God speaks in Hebrew, not in Latin, not in Greek, not in Arab, not in these other Gentile languages. God speaks in Hebrew. What is, are these Gentile languages doing here? It's a sign of judgment. So now we're told in Acts 2.5 that we're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation, under heaven, from all over the Roman Empire, they're there, and we'll wait till next time to get into this and to analyze uh, where all these people came from. But the point is that the gift of tongues was given not to communicate the gospel, but to be a sign of impending judgment, and that judgment came for Israel in A.D. 70. That's no excuse for any human being to ever use that as a basis for anti-Semitism or to be hostile to Israel or hostile to the Jewish people. That's God's business, not our business. And because the Jewish people are still the apple of God's eye, and Genesis 12:2 still stands in effect, those who bless Israel will be blessed, and those who curse Israel will be cursed, it is the role of every believer especially to bless the Jews and bless Israel because the decisions that were made in that generation weren't made by everybody in that generation. They were only made by the leadership in that generation, but there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah uh, in that generation. But the ones that counted in terms of the leadership were the ones that brought judgment upon the nation. With our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time uh, to study your word, to be reminded of your plan in history that the things that happen do not happen uh, by chance. They do not happen just willy-nilly, but they happen according to a plan and purpose and a structure that you've uh, brought into history. And so, Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to study these things, to realize the power that you have, the power of the Holy Spirit, the miraculous realities that occurred there on the day of Pentecost and the evidence that gives to your power, to your veracity, and to the fact that you are true to your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.